0: So, Acts chapter 4, 32 through 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were given their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Pastor Tim, it's all yours. All right, well, if, you, um, if you're waiting for a boring part of the message to text, I think you're going to have a lot of opportunity in this one. Just us give you a fair warning. But it's, uh, it's a little bit meaty in parts. I think sometimes when, uh, when you hear a sermon, you have to get your knife and your fork out. Others, you can have the straw, and you can kind of sip away at it. This one's a little bit of a blend of both. Um, which maybe it's called a breakfast drink, like a high-protein breakfast drink. That's what this sermon is. I just thought of that. That's kind of disgusting. All right, Acts chapter 4, and uh, let's really be in this together. So I'm going to expect and hope that every single one of you have a Bible open and that you are actually following along. I read and preach out of the English Standard Version. Uh, I think it's a pretty good translation. It's verse... Or it's verse for word, word for word translation rather than thought for thought and I think it's a little bit more accurate than others are. So I would invite you if, uh, if you don't if you have a Bible app on your phone and you can find the ESV then that might be a little easier for you to follow. All right so here we go I'm going to set this up and you're going to have to have a little bit of a holy imagination except I don't think you're going to have to imagine very much, because all of you, obviously, have experienced what I'm about to tell you. Imagine that you are visiting a church for the very first time. And when you do, you inevitably and rightfully evaluate it. I mean, you do that, right? And if you're here for the first time right now, or recently been coming, you're evaluating, and I would do the same, and I have done the same. I wasn't always a pastor, and when my wife and I got married in Virginia, she was attending one church that I really didn't like, and I was attending another church that she really didn't like. So we had to find a church that we both liked, and we did. We found a fantastic church, and we got involved, and we served, and we grew. It was a really wonderful experience, but we evaluated it. And you might be evaluating the feel of the place you know you have a feel in a church every church has a feel you might be evaluating the quality of the worship by the way if you enjoyed that worship how about a round of applause just to honor them I love our worship teams in this in this church I think they are uh, growing and they are on fire they're really leading us to worship and sing well you might be evaluating the preaching You might be evaluating the friendship level of a church, how people greet. This is why I'm always telling you, if you, well, I I don't say this enough, actually. I shouldn't probably say I always tell you this, but I want to say it more. If you can do something right now, I would really appreciate it. If you can just, in your mind right now, imagine and picture that other people are here, and they don't have a lot of Christian friends, and they don't know a lot of people in this church, how can you help move them one step closer into fellowship, into friendship, into feeling like they belong in this church? How can you do that? That's what I'm always wanting you to do. I'm always thinking of this, and I don't say it enough, but if you can just think right now, there's likely people here that don't feel as comfortable as you do, how can you make them feel more comfortable? But you evaluated church. I evaluated church. So imagine moving to Jerusalem in the first century. Now you really have to imagine. And you're hearing about this new thing that is sweeping through the city. And it's causing an upheaval. And you check it out. And normally the Jewish people, they would attend one of a lot of synagogues. I mean all through the city of Jerusalem there were so many synagogues. And they would meet on Saturday for worship. They met mainly to hear the word of God and to um, hear or to pray, rather. That's what they did mainly in the synagogue during the worship service. During the week, it was a school for children. But this new thing, and by the way, it's not called the church yet. That's not till chapter 5. Can you imagine that? It's not even called church yet in Acts 4. But this new thing gathers on Sundays. And by the time that we get to Acts chapter 4, best guesses are that they number likely 20,000 people. Now our church, pre-COVID, was around 650. We're getting, um, I think we're getting around 50 to 60% of our people back. If you're watching this online, I would invite you, come on back. It's pretty fun being in person again. But I kind of suspect we're going to have to regrow our church the old-fashioned way, which means you're going to need to talk to people about Jesus, lead them to Christ, and invite them here to grow. That's the old-fashioned way. It's kind of ironic. That's the biblical way. So imagine that you're at this church in Acts chapter 4, even though it's not called the church yet, about 20,000 people, they don't gather like we are, and they're on all of these Uh, home churches, but they gather one day a week, week usually in the court of the Gentiles, outside of Solomon's portico, and imagine you visited one of these fellowships in their homes, and then later you talk to your family about it. Now, you do that, right? I know our family does. We like to talk about how church goes, and if we visited a church, we talk about how that church went. In fact, my son and my daughter-in-law visited a church down in Lancaster a couple weeks ago, and it was fantastic hearing them come back and talking about that church and some of the ideas that they brought back with them. But if you visited this church in the first century in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 4, what would you think you would say about it? You're around the dinner table with your family. You go next door to talk to your friends. How would you describe this Church, I'm going to give you four ways that I'm pretty sure you're going to describe this church. Four things I think you're going to say about the church of Acts chapter 4. Now, everybody look at me for a second, if you would. I think, and I believe, and I hope that we can increasingly be able to say the same things about Cornerstone. I don't think we're quite there yet, which means we all have to pray. We all have to be a better church. Here's the first one. This church is so unified. I think you would Would say that. This church is so unified. Look at verse 32. Now, you know we're a gospel-preaching church. We're a Word of God-preaching church. We're always going to preach a church when we gather. Here's verse 32, Acts chapter 4. Now, you're in it with me? Here's Here's what it says. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Now, I believe you would say that about this church. That they are so unified. It's almost palpable. You could feel it. And we're about to be given a second glimpse of what a church looks like where its people are filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what a church looks like when its people are filled ...with the Holy Spirit. We got our first glimpse in Acts chapter 2. But Luke, who's writing Acts, gives us another inside scoop. Here's what this church actually looked like. Here's what it felt like. This is what they were like. And again, as I've been saying throughout this series... ...Luke, who's inspired by the Spirit... ...does not describe the church by its effective preaching... Or it's powerful worship services or they're speaking in tongues or prophetic utterances These experience, that's how most people describe a church I mean, just think back. The first time you visited Cornerstone or the first time you visited another church, you likely talked about the preaching or you talked about the worship. You talked about these things. That's how most people in the modern American church evaluate a church. But it's not really how Luke evaluated it. And while I believe that God does still perform signs... And wonders and miracles today, they've never been the marks. They've never been the regular marks of a spirit-filled church. You need to correct your mind if that's what you think it is. It's not really what it is in the Bible. But here is one of them. Here is one of the marks of a spirit-filled church. Unity. In fact, unity is something that the Holy Spirit produces among his people. Look what it says in Ephesians 4. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now listen to this. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You see, the Spirit of God manufactures and blesses a church with unity. And these early believers, if you want to look at that again in that verse, verse 32, the early believers, I just love how Luke writes this, were of one heart and soul. Now, I don't know, I I know you probably know this, but I I think it warrants me just reminding you. Luke was not speaking in English. I know that's so ridiculously simple, why am I even bothering to tell you this? But he's speaking in Greek. He's writing in Greek. And that's translated into English by translators. And the early believers were of one heart and soul. So much so that they opened their hands to one another in order that nobody lacked what they needed. Can you imagine being in a church where not one person lacked what they needed? What do they need? Well, sometimes it's material things. But I know your mind probably went to that. Material blessings. That's not all that people need. They need friends. People need rides to doctors. People need help when a storm drops a tree on their roof. People need things that are not just material things. They were of one heart and soul. Now you know what we're doing, right? i just remind you real quick. Luke is describing what this church was like. He's evaluating this church as if he has just come back from it, and he's sitting down with you going, Hey, I just visited a church, and I really want to tell you about it. They were so full of unity. And what is unity? Unity, well, I think we automatically slip our minds to unity being the absence of conflict. And I don't really think that's always what unity is. Unity is the power and the willingness to work through conflict, and to love even in conflict, and to not separate because of conflict. But unity is not just even the absence of differences. It's not like they all became automatons and they all thought the same and developed Christianese language and wore the same t-shirts to church. That's not really what unity is. It's not the absence of differences. It's our differences that make us so strong. It's what's so beautiful about Cornerstone. Cornerstone. And neither is unity the greatest attribute in a church. I know people that just, you've got to have unity, you've got to have unity. That's how they, it's their main mark for a church. It's not the greatest attribute of a church. Here's what the greatest attribute of a church is. That you love God and you love other people. I mean, you ought, ought to be saying amen to that. Whether it's verbally, out loud, or inwardly in your hearts. It is loving God and loving each other. That is the greatest attribute of a church. But when we love ourselves more than God, when we love ourselves more than others, and guess what? I do that, and you do that. And when we do that, that's precisely what creates conflict. Did you know that, that that's actually where conflict comes from? It is self-love. I'll prove it to you from James chapter 4. He writes, what is the source of wars and fights among you? He's talking to believers. So in your church, in your families, in your communities, in your groups, don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? So James is saying that you've got desires, I've got desires, and when those desires are different or in different measures, that's what creates conflict. It's a love for me more than a love for you. It's a want that I get my desires more than I want you to get your desires. And when that happens, here comes conflict. But look at what happens when the Spirit of God diminishes our selfish ambitions and our selfish desires. Verse 32, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. That's what the Spirit of God's doing, believer, in you. That's what the Spirit of God is doing in me. He is diminishing selfish desires so that I begin to learn to want what you want more than I want what I want. And that is always the recipe for love-based unity. And he wonderfully connected the unity of this early church with all of them loving each other very well. So here we go. You just visited this church. And you came away from it just absolutely amazed. Look how selfless and loving and unified they are. But that's not the only mark. I've got three more to tell you. This church has such powerful teaching. This church has such powerful teaching. Look at verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus The apostles were giving their testimony. Now, can you look at me for just a second? That word testimony in the Greek, English is testimony. The Greek is the word that we get martyr from. And a martyr is someone who gives his life or his life is taken away, usually for his religion, for his faith. So the apostles were giving their testimony. It's the exact same word for witnessing. So the apostles were witnessing, and how were they witnessing? They were witnessing in this form of it through preaching and through teaching. And you can witness through sharing the good news of Jesus with your coworker. You can be witnessing through counseling. You can be witnessing while you're praying for an unbeliever. Or you could be witnessing while you're teaching an unbeliever, but they were witnessing, they were giving their testimony, they were testifying that Jesus Christ who had died had been raised to life. Now that's the focus of the resurrection. And it's the central theme of preaching. And without it, you would have the heroic death of a, of, a, of a noble martyr, or even worse, the death of a madman, if Jesus never was raised to life. He was a great guy, but he died. And if he stayed dead, he was just a great guy. In fact, Paul says this, if Christ has not been raised... Christian, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. So all of a sudden, theologically, and by the way, this might be the fork and knife part where Pastor Matthew said it might be a little boring. I think this is actually the most fun part of a sermon. But all of a sudden, we already get this. There's something about forgiveness that is directly linked to the resurrection, The two pillars of the message of redemption are, are these. The cross and the tomb. And on the first one, the cross, Christ died. And in the second one, the tomb, he came out of it. He was raised from death to life. Romans 4 says this, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Do you see those two connections? You think of the cross, you think of your sin and the penalty of it. You think of the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus, you've got to connect it to the justification. ...of every believer. Well, what does that actually mean? In the death of the Son, the Father poured out His wrath... ...for your sins and my sins... And in the resurrection, the Father declared that his wrath was satisfied toward us. The penalty for our sins. It was paid for on the cross. And because of the resurrection, we're declared to be right with God. We're justified. That's what justified means. So if you walk out of here after this message, at least cling to this theology. The justification of a Christian means that you are made right with the Father. Because of Jesus Christ. It's not that the resurrection accomplished our justification. The sinless life and the sin-bearing death of Jesus did that. It's rather that the resurrection, listen, it's a declaration. It's an assurance to you and it's an assurance to me that we are now right with the Father. We have been adopted into his family. He is our Father. We are his child. Newsflash. I just heard a song, a secular song, that said we're all the children of God. That is so not doctrinally right. The only ones who are children of God are those whom Christ has saved. Who have come to the Father through the Son, have put their faith in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. You are now made a child of God. If you reject Jesus, you are no child of God. You are a person of the world. You're an unbeliever. The resurrection assures us of our justification, that we are right with the Father, that we are his children. If Jesus died and stayed dead, It would have proved he was a sinner. Did you know that? Well, that's an alarming thing to say, isn't it? If Jesus died and stayed dead, it would have proved that he was a sinner. For the wages of sin is what? Death. His resurrection proves that he was sinless. That he was, when he was raised, he broke the power of death for every believer. In fact, every believer has a powerful assurance. You will never, ever, ever be condemned by God. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. How do you know that? Because Jesus came out of the grave and made you right with the Father. That's the power of the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ assures us that even right now he is in heaven at his father's right hand doing what? Praying for us. Did you know that Jesus is praying for you, believer? He's interceding for us. He is declaring us forgiven forever. He keeps whispering this into your mind so that you might believe it, and by believing it, be transformed by the truth and not wallow around in shame and brokenness ever again. You are a child of God. You are made right with him. How? Why? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. You see, the resurrection assures us that the power of sin and death are broken. And all believers will be raised to life as well and never die, never suffer again. You're going to be forever with God, united with him. Why? Because of the resurrected Jesus. Christian, can you say this to your mind? You do not have to be under the power of sin ever again. If you sin now, it's not because sin is is more powerful than Christ. It's because you chose to sin. It's because you wanted to sin. Not because you had to sin. And how do you know that? It's because the resurrection of Jesus broke the power of sin in your life. And this so gripped the early church that nine times, did you hear that? Nine times in the book of Acts, they keep declaring the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, over and over. Why? Because there is no gospel, there is no gospel hope without the resurrection. And it must be declared. When's the last time you declared the resurrection to an unbeliever? See, that's got to be the central part of your witnessing. You just can't keep telling people that God loves you. That doesn't dislodge selfishness from a non-believer's heart. You got to let them know that God sent his son to die on the cross to atone for your sins and to take the wrath of the Father. And he came out of that cross in a declaration that he justified you. He made you right with the Father. Now you can actually say, Abba Father, to the Heavenly Father. Why? You wouldn't be able to say it if Jesus didn't come back from the dead. But because he did, you can. So this church has powerful preaching. Because it's focused on the gospel. It's focused on the resurrection of Jesus. But what else would you say? Number three. This church is so blessed that it's become a blessing. This church is so blessed that it has become a blessing. And look what it says in that same verse. And great grace was upon them all. Now, how do you understand that word grace here? Because normally people say of grace, grace is god's unmerited favor it is getting what you don't deserve and mercy god's mercy is not getting what you do deserve that's the pop theology one of it and the way i say it is grace biblically theologically is god's power to break the power of sin in your life his mercy is god's power and willingness to repair the damage that sin has caused in your life But here it means a little bit different. Grace here means favor. And it may be, it's very difficult, by the way, to interpret this. What does it really mean? It may be that God's favor was greatly upon the early church, which was evident in their unity, their strong preaching, as well as their generosity. Or it might be that they had favor with the common people of Jerusalem, even though they didn't have it from its leaders. See, you've got two different angles here. You've got God's favor being poured out in his blessings in the church, and you've got the favor of the people of Jerusalem. My view is probably it's both. God's grace leads to his blessings in both ways, not only from him but with people around you. The early church was experiencing great blessings from God, that led them to being great blessings to the community around them. In other words, let me put it this way. When God's blessings come into Cornerstone, God's blessings go through Cornerstone. Let me say that again. When God's blessings come into Cornerstone... God's blessings necessarily go through Cornerstone. And where do they go? They go to the people around you. They go to the community in which your church can be found. When God's blessings come into your life, Christian, God's blessings must go through your life. And where are they going to go? They're going to go to your neighbors. They're going to go to your family, to your co-workers, your classmates, your teammates. This is how God's blessings move. They come in from God. They go out to others. And I think this is what Luke means. This church is so full of blessings that it has become a blessing. And that is exactly what we're going to see next. My fourth and final, this church. This church is so generous toward each other. Now again, I've given you four, and this is my last one. I'm giving you four ways that I think Luke, if he had visited this church came home and told the family around the dinner table, wow, you should have seen this church. Man, they are so full of unity. You should have heard the preaching. It was so full of confidence in the cross and the resurrection. It was just amazing. God has blessed this church, and it's being a blessing to the people of Jerusalem. And if you would have been there, family, you would have seen that you should have seen how generous they are with each other. Nobody was lacking anything that they needed. And that's what we read in this passage, verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. You know, there's a really cool little verse in Deuteronomy. It's like tucked away in a corner of the Bible. you got to go find it to be able to discover it. And it goes like this, Deuteronomy fifteen four. But there will be no poor among you. That's God speaking, Moses recording. There will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. Now, you got to really hang on to this. You ready? Everybody, if you've been zoning out, just come on back in for a minute. The promise in Deuteronomy was conditional to their obedience. If you obey the Lord, if you live by his law, he is going to bless you. There will not be any poor among you. But guess what? There were poor in the land, the Bible says. There were poor in the land. They didn't obey. And as we look again at the early church, God's blessings of favor were being poured out on them. And there were no poor in this church. There were no needy in the church at that time. And the reason was because the people were living the way that God commanded, generously, Now, let's just really do this. I know it's kind of hard to do this because it's not very comfortable, but no matter what your income level is, whether you're living on welfare or you're making a hundred something a year, in fact, every single survey and data point will show you that the poorer you are tends to be the more generous that you are. That's crazy. But I could show you study after study that says you make more money and you close your fist to the needy. And when you don't have very much money, money doesn't have very much of a hold on you. And your hand is open to the needy. The reason there were no poor is because the people of God gave generously but what is this, first century socialism and communism? That's what Plato envisioned. Plato, the great philosopher, statesman, he envisioned an ideal society as being one that had no private ownership, and the entire Greek pathos system picked it up, and they tried to teach this, and they tried to create this, and it didn't work. It's not a first century version of communism or socialism that you see in the church. The early church retained the rights of private ownership. We're going to see that in the very next chapter. They gave voluntarily. The Greek tense, in fact, indicates that every once in a while, somebody sold the property, and then they brought the money, and they laid it at the apostles' feet, which is similar to us putting it in a basket when it's passed. The apostles would take that money and then they would distribute it to fellow believers when a need arose so that there was not a needy person among them. If you've got in your mind that everybody sold their homes, everybody sold their land, nobody had land, listen, that is not at all what was happening. It was every once in a while somebody had an extra piece of land that they didn't need. So they sold it. Or they downsized a home or moved in with relatives and they sold the home and they brought the money to the apostles. And the apostles then began to direct it to those who didn't have any money. Finally, there was no needy people left. Now, listen, let me ask you a question. What, and I'm almost done, what actually takes a fist that is closed and has the power to open it so you give generously? I mean, this is what a lot of us do, right? You see a need and you close your fist. I've worked hard for that. I'm not going to sell my house. There's no way I would do that. That's a closed fist. I'll tell you what prides the fingers open. It is the unbelievably rich grace of God. And the more that pours into your life, one finger at a time begins to unfurl and begins to straighten up. And then you begin to develop the attitude that, you know what, my health, my time, my material possessions, they're all gods. I'm just stewarding them. I'm just managing them. And God has the right to come down and grab this and bring it over to somebody else that needs it. And when he starts grabbing that, I can't grab hold of it. Because if I grab hold of it, I'm being disobedient. I don't understand grace. I think I merited my favor. No, I don't want grace. I want my possessions. And that's a closed fist. But the, but the grace of God is persuasive. And it works from the inside out. So that your fingers open. And God has a freedom to take what he owns. And move it where he wants. That's the way the early church lived. Would you want to be part of that church? I mean, come on, can you think of being part of that church? That would be amazing. Would you not only pray that God would transform Cornerstone to be that kind of a church... But even better, and I think way more effective, would you pray that God makes you this kind of a Christian so that you will have a heart of incredible unity and you will be able to testify to people of God's resurrection and his son, Jesus Christ. And that you would have so much grace that you've become not only a receiver of blessings, but a giver of blessings, and one that actually evidences that in generosity. If you're that kind of a Christian, and I'm that kind of a Christian, we'll be that kind of a church. Does that make sense? That's the church I want to be part of. And even better, that's the Christian that I want to become. I'm not there yet, but I want to be there. So why don't we close and ask the Lord to help us. Would you do that with me? Heavenly Father, I'm going to at least admit it. Lord, I'm not there. But I know I want to be there. And Lord, I can't be there in my own effort. I can't be there in my own power and I can't be there in my own will. Lord, I can only be there when the gospel of Jesus, of Jesus Christ works from the inside out, and we just sang about it. When the Spirit of God changes my heart so that I want what you want and hate what you hate, I'll be on the way to being that kind of a Christian. And Lord, I would pray that you would help all of us, even if there's somebody visiting the church today, and they go back to their church. Lord, let them go back determined, to prayerfully ask for the Spirit of God to fill them so that there would be an incredible unity in their hearts. So that they would witness of Jesus Christ's death, burial, resurrection in a powerful way. And Father, so that there would be such a, an abundance of blessings pouring into their lives that they would direct them out to other people and that would be evident in their generosity. Father, will you help us be a church Of Christians like this, that would be powerful. That would be powerful. People would come here, they would get a taste, a little taste of the kingdom of God, and they would want more. Lord, there's some repenting that perhaps we need to do, and there's some pleading that we need to do, and we invite you to have your way in us. Lord, as we sing, and as we get ready to to read these responses that have been sent in of our thankfulness to you, Lord, let it be alive in us, and let it be life-transforming in Jesus' name. Amen.